Welcome to the Church Basement Podcast. Today's topic is the tree of life. Grab a cup of coffee or tea, strap on your running shoes, or pick up your crochet hook or knitting needles and join us. But first, let us introduce ourselves. I'm Dawn Miller, a member here at Central and the producer of the podcast. And Pastor Amanda is on vacation this week, so I once again get the pleasure of talking to Deacon Bonnie. Hi, I'm Deacon Bonnie. Excellent. Okay, so when we realized the scheduling snafu that sort of happened last minute, Pastor Amanda suggested this topic for us of the Tree of Life. So my opening salvo to you is, why? What's up with the Tree of Life? I think Pastor Amanda brought it up because I have a tattoo on my right arm of the Tree of Life. Okay. And how long have you had it and why'd you get it? I got this tattoo in... 2016, as I was starting grad school to get my master's degree in theology. Okay. And I got it because there is a verse in the book of Revelation, the second verse in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, talks about the tree of life in the kingdom of God. And it says, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Is it one of those things where like... The tree is huge and plentiful and the leaves are everywhere. Or is it like a scarcity issue? Like only the good can have the leaves of the tree of life. It is a very abundant description of life in the kingdom of God. And so there's the river of life flowing through the center of the city of God next to the throne of God. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. And the tree bears 12 kinds of fruit, a different fruit in each season. So it is definitely an image of enough for everyone in God's good design. Now, when I think of the book of Revelations, that is not the image that I come up with. (laughs) How does it fit with the rest of what goes on? Well, you know, there's a lot of interpretation of the book of Revelation. And there's a lot of pop culture invasion into the longer standing Christian tradition of what is actually happening in the book of Revelation. Yeah, because the image in my head is not a happy, abundant, everybody gets a little slice of heaven kind of thing. Yeah, the concept of Revelation as sort of a, you know, an end times story Mm -hmm. or a depiction of what will be is really a relatively new understanding within the last century. And the popular culture pieces around like the Left Behind series and those depictions of what happens in Revelation, I would call a misuse. And most mainline denominations have repudiated that interpretation of this book. So the center of the book of Revelation is Jesus. And this understanding of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb who conquers through death and resurrection. So it's very much about what Luther called the theology of the cross. So these modern misunderstandings depict military conflicts, violence, conquering through power and might and fighting It's very kind of sci-fi. There are video games based on it that involve like first-person shooter. Mm -hmm. None of this gels with what the rest of the Bible reveals to us about God. And none of it actually gels with the theology behind the book of Revelation. So 
you know, Jesus shows us one who conquers through self-sacrifice, one who is nonviolent. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus is really shown as a new Moses leading the people of God out of empire. So there's this hearkening back, you know, between the first book and the last book of the Bible. And yes, that does mean that that understanding means looking at Jewish scripture, the Genesis story, through a Christian lens. But that is how Christians understand the whole of the Hebrew scripture and the New Testament together. Sure. So in the book of Revelation, Jesus is a conqueror, but not through violence, but uh, inviting us to also conquer by being people who follow the way of Jesus. And this was important at the time Revelation was written, which was like 95 AD. So the temple fell in Jerusalem in 70 AD, and they are living under Roman occupation. Okay. And the conflict with the early Christians at this point, at least in the churches that John is directly writing to in Revelation, is this question of how much allegiance should we show empire and how much allegiance should we show Jesus? Sure. So the book, you know, is kind of three genres all together. It is a letter, so it's an epistle. It is the letter of John to the seven churches in Asia Minor. The other genre that it is, is it is an apocalypse, which was a very common genre at that time, an actual way of writing Okay, that the people who were reading John's letter would have understood and been very familiar with. So earlier I said, you know, one of the ways that Revelation gets twisted in our culture is it almost seems like a sci-fi novel. Mm-hmm. When I say that about a genre, it seems like a sci-fi novel. You know what to do with your brain about, well, what would that mean? What would a sci-fi novel be like? Writing apocalyptic literature in the time that Revelation was written worked the same way. So if someone said, oh, well, this is apocalyptic, you know, in today's culture, we think, well, what does that mean? Does it mean after the fall of the world? What does apocalypse mean? Uh For the people reading at the time that this was written, they understood the apocalyptic genre outside of just scripture or outside of Christian or Jewish interpretation. And really what the word apocalypse means is revelation. It's the revealing. And so when we say that the book of Revelation is apocalyptic, it is this unveiling, this tearing away of the things that sort of hang before our eyes and we don't see the world as it really is. Sure. So we have something that's a letter, it's apocalyptic, and it's also prophetic. So the book of Revelation echoes back repeatedly to the prophetic books of the Hebrew Testament. It echoes back not just in themes, but in actual allusions to scripture. So pieces of scripture are lifted out of the prophetic books of the Hebrew Testaments and woven throughout what John is writing. And a lot of those pieces show up in like the numerology and the other symbolism that people now get caught up in thinking there's a secret code to crack. Oh, yeah. 
it's not really about cracking a secret code. It's the writer's invitation to go back and dig into the story. It's this echo back and forth, all of these sevens. Well, what do these sevens really mean? Mm -hmm. Well, these sevens mean in the book of Daniel, there's this. In the book of Ezekiel, there's this. So all of these echoes back and forth that are inviting people to read this particular letter through the lens of the scripture that they all knew that they were brought up in. It has to be taken in context. Funny so thing. It's not necessarily that the numbers are going to add up and mean something going forward. It's that the numbers are there to remind you of the stories that you have already heard and already listened to in the past, correct? Right. Okay. There's all of this symbolic numerology that was very much part of the Hebrew scripture. And so you know that this is a signal, you know, seven is a signal for completeness. Lots of twelves, twelves are the 12 tribes of Israel. So most often these numbers, again, it's all the context. It's all about rooting in the bigger picture. I'd often wondered if it also had something to do with an oral tradition that would have been happening at the time that it would have been a story or a series of stories that would have been told from one person to another and not necessarily read or written down. And if that calling back of numbers was another way to uh, help you remember the stories as you go along, don't know. I think that's an interesting premise, especially about the earlier scripture pieces in the Hebrew Testament. At the time John is writing the letter, you know, obviously he's writing the letter that then would have been read out loud to these seven churches. So the recipients of the letter at the time, most of them would have heard the letter. Sure. Because it would be the gathered community and sure. someone would read John's letter. And then, of course, that would become an oral tradition because you would tell others, well, mm -hmm. what did you hear? But particularly back to those prophetic books, the books of the prophets, that was all very much oral tradition at the time. So with those three things going on, with it being a letter, with it being an apocalyptic letter, and a letter that works as prophecy, that can help with the understanding of a book that for most of my lifetime, lots of people, especially through the pop culture lens, have come to see Revelation as sort of a scary book. Oh, yeah, because it's like there's weird things that go on in there, and I don't need that necessarily. I would rather go back to some other more comforting section. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and really it's unfortunate because the book of Revelation is beautiful. Much of our liturgy comes out of Revelation, especially the liturgical settings I grew up on in the Lutheran church, all of the language around slain is the Lamb of God and those pieces around the Eucharist, that is all pulled right out of Revelation. Oh, I did not know that. That's fascinating. Yeah. When you read Revelation, you recognize the words that, at least for me, I grew up singing. I grew up on a church where we did a special liturgy on communion Sundays because that was once a month. Uh-huh. And so all of the language around the Eucharist is echoed right out of Revelation for the Lamb of God who was slain, who's taken away the sin of the world. Yeah. And the angels singing praises around the throne. 
all of this elevated imagery of the slain lamb comes out of the book of Revelation, because there's this thing that's happening in the book where John is encountering Hebrew Testament scripture that all points to the Messiah, who in the First Testament, they still believe is going to be a militaristic king. Mm -hmm. And so John is given this piece of scripture, you know, to read, and then he sees, he turns and he sees something different. So there's the imagery of the triumphant king, the root of David, the lion of Judah. So this conquering lion that comes out of one of the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Judah, all of this kind of triumphal imagery about the Messiah. And then John turns and sees the slain lamb, and that's the Messiah. So that's the twist of it, is can you understand that this sacrificial lamb is the one who restores justice? It's the only one who can open the scrolls that are talked about in Revelation. And what that really points to is Jesus as the key to understanding God's design for us all, what God wants the world to be like, which sort of wraps back to that question about the tree of life in the book of Revelation. Because why why that speaks to me is you have this book, it's a complicated book, but it's a beautiful book. It's a wake-up call. So we talked about it being prophetic. Mm -hmm. And prophetic in the sense of the prophets doesn't mean forecaster or future teller. It's not like I'm reading the cards and saying, this is what's going to happen. Prophets are bearers of warning, and they call us to metanoia, to heart change, to turning. And so what can be interpreted as threat or doom that prophets proclaim mm -hmm. are actually just pointing to outcomes. Here is God's way, and you are being invited to God's way. Here is the path that you are on <laughs> that sure. is not aligned with God's way. And here are the natural outcomes of the path you are on. Sure. And then so in this kind of prophetic language, particularly in Revelation, there's this contrasting between the way of God the way of life, the way of the lamb, which results in all of these things we see depicted as the kingdom. Here is the way of God, and the results of the way of God are the kingdom. And here is the way of empire, and the results of the way of empire are these things. And so it's not this forecast, you know, the way that pulp culture reading goes is, here's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. In the end, before Jesus can come back, the world's going to be destroyed, and there's going to be this big fight, and then in the end, everybody gets sucked up. Mm -hmm. That's actually not how the book works. Okay. I'm happy to hear that, actually. Yes. It's another case where the book and the movie don't match. <laughs> it's classic. In this case, the end of the book, God comes down to heaven and dwells with us. That is the resolution of Revelation. For God comes to live with us. That's a way more gentle ending than you get in any <laughs> yes. other movie, in any other anything. Yes. 
So all of these ideas about apocalypse means destroy the earth, crash and burn, and then God takes us away from here. That's not how the book actually works. And again, this book, echoing back to the first book. Mm -hmm. So you've got Genesis, you've got the tree of life in the garden, you've got creation, and God makes all these things. And each time something is made, God says, and it's it was good. good. Yep. So how in the world could the book end with, I'm going to destroy it all? This is a bad book, if that's how it works. <laughs> and, it, and it's not how it works. The story ends with Jesus, you know, being the sacrificial lamb. And through that, we are all restored. And God comes to dwell with us here. And that is the kingdom. And so it's this contrast prophecies work on contrast. And mm -hmm. so the prophecy is, here's the path you're on. Here's its natural outcomes. I think you should rethink this. Yeah. There's another path. <laughs> yes. Here's the path you're invited to. And that path ends this way. And so in the last chapter of the last book, the path of God ends in the city of God. And in this city, you know, there's the river of life, the throne of God. There's no need for lamps because God shines bright all the time. And there's this tree, this tree of life that has 12 fruits, a different fruit in every season, and its leaves are for the healing of the nation. Let me ask you this. Why the tree versus all the other imagery in there? I think there's probably a number of reasons that that lodged in my mind. Okay. This verse for me really started sticking in my brain after the 2009 decision of the ELCA to ordain queer people uh -huh. who were living partnered lives and living them publicly. Uh -huh. And so I don't know why it started to stick in my brain. I mean, for me, that was a significant change mm -hmm. because I had always experienced a sense of call. The church said, that's not an option for you. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of pain around that for me sure and work to reconcile what it meant to love an institution that couldn't figure out if I was an actual viable person or not uh -huh. in their eyes and so this sense of healing seemed captured in this verse for me which is what the leaves of the tree are for yes. interesting and so you know the lectionary comes around you hear this piece of scripture a few years into really actively trying to discern what it meant now for me to have experienced this sense of call and to have that pathway opened, I had started doing faith-based organizing and was working with some other folks in doing a lay school of theology. Mm -hmm. And I was invited to work alongside like five other people teaching a class on the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. And that was a really interesting experience for me. Very exciting, very interesting. Also a chance in some ways to see if these were skills that I could tap into. Sure. Because I had been sort of shut out. And so I had honed other skills out in the world. And I, I loved it. I loved the chance to connect with people in that way. And that was another time that this verse just kept coming back to me. 
And so there was probably a good six years before I got the tattoo that this verse was just in my head. And of course, I love to hike. I love to camp. I love nature. So this really just sat with me. And so I decided that I would get the tattoo once I got accepted to grad school. And I worked with an artist who was really good at listening to what was important to me about the tree as opposed to just, oh, it's the Pacific Northwest. You want another tree. Uh (laughs) And really captured that sense of the leaves being the point. And so the color in my tattoo is all in the leaves. And sometimes people think that my tattoo is upside down because it's on my right forearm with the trunk pointing at my elbow and the leaves extending out toward my right hand. Well, that made sense to me because it's something you're going to want to look down at and see upright for you, right? (laughs) Well, that's true as well. But for me, it was about what am I putting out into the world? Oh, okay. So sometimes I've called this my accountability tattoo. I'm Mm right-handed. This is the hand that at least (laughs) Mm pre-COVID I would shake hands with people with. It's the hand that if I serve communion, I am serving communion with. It's the hand that if I write, I'm writing with. It is the hand that I extend out into the world through, whether that's doing direct action, doing care for another, all of those things. And so it's really hard to forget what you're supposed to be up to when every time you're up to something that's there looking at you saying, what are you supposed to be about in the world? So whenever I encounter kingdom language in scripture, for me, it's both a promise and a call. And so this language that says, this is what the kingdom is like. The kingdom is like a place where there is a tree that bears a different fruit in every season. So there's always something to eat and there's always something for everyone. And the kingdom is like a place where the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The promise in that for me was that I would experience healing. And the call in that for me is that I will help build a world that looks more like the kingdom. I will help build a place where the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And so that's why that particular verse stuck with me, what it said to me, and why for me it's an accountability. Because it is God saying, I promised this. And you experience this. And now I invite you to be part of building this, this kingdom vision. Because part of what we see in Revelation isn't the kingdom as a later thing, as a far off, different, distant place that you either only get to when you die or after some version of tribulation and war and conflict, and then God takes you somewhere else. God comes to dwell with us. And that is very much a right now thing, not just this concept of something separate and something different, but it's the way of life that we're invited into all of the time as followers of Jesus. Excellent. Okay, that's going to lead me to my last question. Is this a complete tattoo on its own or through the years have you thought, I'd like to add maybe the river or the throne or the something else to it? I'm pretty sure this is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, never say never. I have a left arm too. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think this one is, 
in itself complete. Excellent. Well, thank you, Deacon Bonnie, for taking the time to help us learn a little more about the Tree of Life. I look forward to sitting down and having you on the podcast again someday. And thank you to everybody else for listening. A little reminder, you can find us on iTunes, and you can email us questions to podcast at centralportland.org. And you can always find us on Facebook and leave comments or suggest topics. And finally, as always, please remember that God loves you no matter what.